This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Ephesians 6 for the final time in this series. And uh, we'll finish uh, what we started all those weeks ago. We'll finish it tonight. So this morning we said, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then tonight we want to continue with this. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. The Amplified Version says, praying with every kind of prayer. Moffat's translation, praying with every manner of prayer. Now, every manner of prayer, every kind of prayer uh, can be viewed in two ways, and both are correct. It can mean praying on all and on every occasion, or praying for all and on every occasion. Like public praying, for example, or private praying, your private devotions, or maybe family praying, where a family will pray together, or corporate praying, as we do in our prayer gatherings on Thursday night, or maybe praying inwardly, silently, or verbally, outwardly. There's all kinds of manners and ways to pray. Or, or it can mean various kinds of prayers that can be offered Uh, that would be appropriate for the need that we're praying for. Because we have a tendency to think in prayer, one size fits all, but it actually doesn't. Because there are various types of prayer that are appropriate to what you're praying for. There's a prayer of intercession. There's a prayer of agreement. There's a prayer of binding and loosing. There's a prayer of faith. Prayer of thanksgiving. Prayer of praise. Prayer of consecration. Praying in the Spirit, the prayer of worship, prayer of repentance, prayer of dedication, whether that's a child or whether it's an adult or whether it's a church building or whatever. Prayer of petition, prayer of supplication. And there's a slight difference between those two. Prayer of petition is more of a general type of prayer request. But a prayer of supplication is a more focused prayer. It's a more fervent prayer, a more determined prayer. And a prayer of reciprocity. Pray you one for another that you may be healed. And so that's like a two-way deal, isn't it? Pray one for another that you may be healed. That's the reciprocity. So let's have a little look. There's too many there, of course, for us to look at uh, tonight in any one situation. But let's just uh, pick one or two of those out just to focus on for a little bit this evening. What about the prayer of intercession? In Job chapter 9, verse 32 and 33, and you don't need to turn to these. In the New King James, which I'm using, for he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we should go to court together, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. The authorized version says, for he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, 
and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any day's man betwixt us that may lay his hand on us both. Or the Amplified saying the same verse, For God is not a mere man as I am, that I should answer him, that we should come together in court. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand on us both, would that there were. And so notice what Job is wishing for, a day's man, an umpire, a referee, if you will, a mediator, somebody to come between him and God, somebody that could understand his feelings and what he's going through, and yet someone who knows God and understands God's feelings, what God thinks, Someone like that who could lay a hand on both of us, who could plead my cause to God because he knew how I feel, and yet would be totally honest because he knows how God thinks and how God feels. Would that there were, he said, because he couldn't find a mediator. And so he's asking for someone to intercede. He's asking, in effect, for an intercessor, someone to come between man and God. Isaiah 59 and 6. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness, it sustained him. So God saw that there was no intercessor for man. There's nobody that could fully understand man and fully understand him. And that's why, of course, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the God-man, who was very God and very man at the same time, who was man and God coalescing in one, who could understand man, who would be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, our weaknesses, and yet was fully God at the same time. And so the Lord Jesus Christ became our perfect intercessor, the only perfect intercessor. His whole life on earth was filled with unbroken communion with the Father for us, for mankind. And his great prayer in John 17, which we have read many times, you see that he is praying for his church. He's praying to the Father. He's interceding for his church. And he wants his church to see him in his glory that he had with the Father before the world began. And he wants us to be one as he is one with the Father. And so he's praying for us. He's interceding for us. He's our intercessor. Thank God he is. In 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And that's why any man, every man, can only come to God through Jesus Christ. He is the only mediator between men and God. Nobody else on earth could have fit that bill of being fully man and fully God. Fully understanding man, fully understanding God. And he came together as a God-man. Emmanuel, God, is with us. And so, in 1 John 2 and 1, my little children, these things I write to you, so that ye may not sin. And if anyone sins, he's speaking to believers, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
W. Vine, that great scholar, said that this word advocate here is parakletos. And it was a word that was used then, and it's a word that the, the church, particularly Paul, incorporated into the church language. And it was used in a court of justice to denote a legal assistant, a counsel for defense, an advocate. If you go to court today, you need an advocate. You need somebody to plead your cause. And the better advocate you have, the better it is going to be for you. Somebody who fully understands your case and will plead that before the judge. And Jesus Christ is our advocate, fully understands us. So it's one who generally pleads another cause, an intercessor, in other words, an advocate. And in its widest sense, it means a comforter, a sucker, someone called alongside to help you in your time of need. Thank God we have an advocate who sits at the right hand of the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who prays for you, daily prays for you. And thank God we have the Holy Spirit in us who's our advocate on earth, the one who's come alongside to help us and to give us the strength that we need every day. In fact... That's Jesus Christ's present-day ministry. He's not here on earth, but he's ministering at the right hand of the Father for us as our intercessor, as our advocate. In Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Thank God for the Holy Spirit we have right now. But let's not forget that Jesus is still working on our behalf at the right hand of the Father. For us, he says. Romans 8, 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. <laughs> what a wonderful privilege we have. You know, when you talk about prayer, and this is why I start this way, when you talk about prayer, invariably, inevitably, we go on to talking about how we pray and what's required of us to pray. But let's never forget that the greatest prayer is praying on our behalf, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a wonderful prayer he was and is. And he gets his prayers answered, doesn't he? Who knows what we have escaped from and avoided because of his prayers at the right hand of the Father. I think only heaven will uh, make that known to us. Who knows what plot or plan the evil one had that Christ says, no, no, you can't do that. You remember Job, how God allowed the enemy to strike at Job, but he had him on a leash. He could only go so far. And who knows what the enemy has plotted against us, and Christ says, no, can't do that, and prays for us as our intercessor, as the one who stands on our behalf before the throne. Abraham was another great intercessor in the Old Testament. You remember how that his relative Lot and his family had ensconced themselves in Sodom, that terrible, abominable city, and how that God sent his messengers to say that he was going to destroy it? And Abraham then interceded on behalf of his family members who shouldn't have been there. The Bible says, Lot, the righteous man vaxed his soul daily, but he still stayed there. 
another in danger of being destroyed. And so Abraham pleads with God. He intercedes. He stands in the gap for them. And he says, God, will you destroy the righteous with the unrighteous? Far be it from you to do that. Lord, if there's 50 righteous, will you spare the city? God says, I'll spare the city if there's 50 righteous. Lord, if there's five less, if there's 45, will you destroy? I'll not destroy it if there's 45. If there's 30, if there's 40, if there's 30, if there's 20, I'll not destroy it if there's 20. Lord, let me speak one more time. If there's 10 righteous, will you destroy it? I'll not destroy it if there's 10 righteous. But he didn't continue after that. And the Lord did destroy it. And the angel says, I want you to get out with your wife and your daughters and your sons-in-laws. The sons-in-laws laughed. They thought it was a joke, but it was no joke. And how then the angel grabbed them by the hand and took them out. And how Lot's, or Lot's wife turned back looking and she was turned into a pillar of salt. But notice how Abraham interceded and prayed and pleaded with God all to save his family members. And all of us has got family members, I'm sure, at some place, some part of our heritage that are not saved that are going to lost eternity tonight. The reality is hell awaits them and that's why we need to plead for them and pray for them and intercede for them as best we can. Moses was a great intercessor. In Exodus chapter 32, there's a scene here. <coughs> how that Moses was up the mountain getting instructions from God and he stayed up there a long time. And the people got restless. Now when the people saw Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered to, to Aaron who was his brother, and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off their golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Could you believe that this is only weeks, literally weeks after God delivered them from Egypt with miraculous signs and wonders? And only after weeks they have completely backslidden and now they want to worship other gods and to make it even worse. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation, said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose early on the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now they're mixing the true faith with a pagan faith in weeks. And God was angry. And God said to Moses, you can read the story there, he was angry at what the people were doing. And he told Moses to get down because he was going to destroy them. In verse 11, Moses pleaded with the Lord, his God. 
they said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn away your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of to get, I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Moses stood in the gap. They didn't deserve it. But because Moses loved them and Moses wanted to preserve them and Moses wanted those promises of God that was given to them to come to fruition. But he had to go down and rebuke them sternly. And if you read on, you'll see what he did. And in verse 29, Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day and every man has opposed his son and his brother. For every man has opposed his son and his brother. Now it came to pass the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. So now I go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, all these people have committed a great sin and have made themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not... I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Probably the greatest act of intercession in the Old Testament, where Moses was prepared to say, God, if you don't spare them, don't spare me. He took a chance, didn't he? He risked it, but he interceded in such a passionate way that God answered that prayer of intercession. And God spared them. They had to be rebuked and punished, but he spared them as a people, as a nation. So the prayer of intercession is a wonderful prayer. It's a thing that all of us can do. You know... Whenever we talk about intercession, a number of years ago, it crept into the church, this whole thing about intercessors. And, and thank God for people who do intercede. But the reality is, every single one of us is called to be intercessors. Now, some won't want to intercede, and some won't really want to pray desperately in behalf of another person but we're all called to do it. But what crept into the church some years ago, and I say it, the church at large, was this business of intercessors. And, and sometimes it bred an elitism within churches. Well, they're the intercessors. They're, they're the ones that bombard heaven. They're the ones that hear from God. To the point where it was overruling authority in the church. It was overruling leadership in the church. Because we're the intercessors, don't you know? We're the ones who are really praying in this place. And so God speaks to us. Even above the leadership of the church, you cannot find that in Scripture. You cannot find a bunch of people called intercessors in Scripture because every one of us is an intercessor, potentially, 
and should be. There are people who will be given to that and thank God for that. There'll be people who will set themselves aside to intercede. Wonderful. But every one of us should be intercessors. Do you understand what I'm saying to you tonight? And so each of us, without exception, is an intercessor of one degree or another. And so Jeremiah was an intercessor for his people. He's called the weeping prophet. He wrote the book of Lamentations. That needs to tell you everything you need to know about him because he was constantly praying and fasting and crying and weeping on behalf of the nation, interceding. Paul was interceding for the churches that he ministered to. In fact, if you, which we have done in this study, if you read his great prayers for the church in Ephesus, you see he's praying for them, he's interceding for them. He wants the best for them. He wants them to know the revelation of God. He wants them to see themselves seated in the heavenly places with Christ. He wasn't sure they could see that or know that, so he's praying for them, he's interceding for them. He's coming before God on their behalf. The Holy Spirit is an intercessor. In Romans 8, 26 and 27, likewise the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. This, reverse, this verse reveals to us a couple of things. Not only is the Holy Spirit our intercessor on earth, which we've already mentioned, Christ is the intercessor for us in heaven, but that he helps us to intercede. That he energizes us that he emboldens us to intercede. And this is part of his ministry for us. The Holy Spirit can take hold of our weak, frail, not knowing what to pray for prayers. Have you ever had any of those in your life? Have you ever had times when you just didn't know, how am I going to pray for this? What am I going to say? How am I going to handle this? Whether it's for yourself or on behalf of others. Uh, and sometimes our prayers seem weak and frail and anemic. And that's when the Holy Spirit wants to help us, to pray through us, to intercede for us, for others. This is what Paul means by praying in the Spirit. Now, I know as Pentecostals, we have another connotation, which I'll talk about in a moment. But really, truly, this is what he means, praying in the Spirit. In other words, not just our own human effort. And thank God we do that. But when the Holy Spirit gets involved in whatever you're praying for, then there's a difference. Right. Have you ever been praying for something or someone or some whatever it may be, and you're praying your normal type prayer? And maybe you feel you're really getting nowhere, but you keep at it and you keep praying. And then suddenly, sometimes it happens, suddenly the Holy Spirit gets behind that prayer and he starts praying through you. He starts interceding, using you to intercede. And suddenly there's a freshness and there's a more passion about it and there's a more determination about it. And there's a, there's a heightening and a quickening in that prayer. And you feel, I've got somewhere in that prayer. I've got a breakthrough. Something's happened in that prayer. That's what it means by praying in the Spirit. 
I wish that we did that every time we open our mouth in prayer, but we don't. But there are those moments and there are those times when the Holy Spirit gives us that extra energy and strength to pray and to break through. And this is what he means by praying in the Spirit. Now, Pentecostals is another connotation with this. In Romans 8, 26, it talks about praying in the Spirit, but with groanings which cannot be uttered. And it literally means with groanings which cannot be uttered in articulate speech. In other words, in other words there's a prayer burden for someone or something. And, and it's hard to, to get the right form of words for what you're praying about. And you find yourself, it's almost like an inner groan. It's almost like, <sighs> do you ever get one of those times? And, and, and it's, like, it's, like a, it's like something in your belly, in your innermost being, that's crying out to God. And you can't actually get it into words that you want to say. But it's just a deep feeling in your heart that you're praying for someone who's gone through something or somebody's battling with something and you're praying for them and you've maybe prayed a million times and you got to that stage, Lord, I don't know what to say anymore. This is so frustrating. I, I, just, I just feel like a groan inside. Those are the times when the Holy Spirit can help you. And the way he can help you is through speaking in other tongues. And that's what I'm going to mention briefly next in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And he's writing a prophecy about speaking in tongues. And he's writing about uh, edification, exhortation, and so forth. Uh, because the church at Corinth were very, very long on gifts, but short on graces. And they had got to the stage, even though it was a great church and a dynamic church, but it had got to the stage where particularly tongues had become such a big issue that Paul felt the need to write to try to put it into some kind of an order that they would understand and do. So he says, pursue love. He's just finished talking about the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. He says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue, this is an unknown tongue, unknown to you. He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Edification is building up. Exhortation is a drawing near. Comfort is comfort. Understand that simply enough. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, builds up himself spiritually. Edifies is where we get edifice from, and edifice is a building, isn't it? So Paul's, Paul's endorsing speaking in tongues, by the way. He's not telling folk not to do it. He just say, do it the right way. Get it right, that's what he's saying. He who speaks in the tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. 
I wish that you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless he interprets that the church may receive edification or building up. Now, this is where a little bit of confusion comes in. You have the ability by the Holy Spirit to speak in tongues on a personal level. And most tongues spoken are on a private, personal level. But when we come into church, and if it's a, if it's a gift of tongues that's accompanied by an interpretation, then that's equal to a prophecy because everybody understands that. Are you still with me? All right. So, does that mean then that when you come into church that you can't use your personal tongues? You should only do that privately unless there's interpretation. And so, does that mean that the only tongues that should be spoken in church should only be accompanied by interpretation? If it's not accompanied by interpretation, it shouldn't be spoken. Not exactly. It means we can't continue on it. Let me give you an example. If tonight, if when Johnny and Clifford come up here to lead the worship, if all they did was simply speak in tongues or sing in tongues, and then I come up to preach to you, and all I did for 30, 40 minutes was speak in tongues, what in the world good would that do you? You'd be sitting there saying, David, I am bored to tears. That ah, just doing me no good. As much as it might do us some good, it's doing you no good. And our job is to edify you, to build you up in your most holy faith. But if they get up to lead, and if a tongue came forth that was in a more heightened way, maybe just start out speaking personally in tongues, just a little bit, but in a more heightened way, maybe that would be accompanied by an interpretation. And that would be equal to prophecy because everybody would understand it and everybody would be built up with that. So, if we started speaking personally in tongues, if we would have to stop that, we couldn't continue with that for the rest of the service because that wouldn't be right. And that's what was happening in the Corinthian church. They were so enamored with speaking in tongues that that was all they wanted to do. And it became ridiculous. It wasn't building the church up. So it became ridiculous. And Paul's trying to stop that and get that in order. By the way, when it comes to interpretation, Paul even regulates that so that the whole night is not taken up with tongues and interpretation, good as that may be. But he regulates that two or three at the most so that there's room for the Word of God to be... The Word of God has to be chief seat in the synagogue at all times. So... But Paul's not saying do away with this, nor does he say it's been done away with, as many teach today. It hasn't. It's still in the church today. Thank God it is. I wish that you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied, for he prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets that the church may receive edification. Now, but now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by teaching? 
Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself for the battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification, the building up of the church, that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding isn't fruitful. Hmm. So, if I pray in a tongue, I have no idea what that is. But mysteriously and spiritually, Paul says, it builds me up spiritually, even though I don't know what it is. But after I pray that, and this is a good thing in prayer. After I pray that, I can ask the Lord, Lord, what, what was that about? When I felt like speaking in tongues there, what was that about? Give me some instruction here. And maybe then what you need to pray for will become more clear to you. You begin to see it. Paul goes on to say, what is the conclusion then? Why do I do this? I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the unformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. Again, when I stand up here, I would rather speak to you five words that you understand than 10,000 words you don't understand because otherwise it would do you absolutely no good whatsoever. Unless it was a tongue accompanied by interpretation. All right? But that little bit I said earlier, that when you come in, and maybe during the term of worship, you start to speak your personal language of the Spirit and tongues. That's okay, but you can't do that the rest of the service. That's only a little bit. But the whole service can't be taken up with that, because otherwise not all of us will be edified. All right, so... The Holy Spirit helps us whenever we're praying and we don't know what to pray, we don't know how to pray, we can't get it out, it's not an articulate speech, what do we do? A good thing to do is begin to speak in other tongues and it will help you, I promise you, it will help you. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, Therefore I exert first of all that supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all those who are in authority, whether you agree with them or not. And that's the hard part, isn't it? No matter who you vote for on election day, we're to pray for the whole government. I know they're doing their head at the minute. I know they haven't been working for a year and a half and to get full pay for that. I know that just does your head in. But remember Paul's writing. 
and he didn't have democracy. He had a brutal pagan government in control who eventually killed him. But what does he say to the church? He says, pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for all those who are in authority. In fact, he goes on further and says, the powers that be are ordained of God. <laughs> That's a good reason to pray for them, isn't it? And boy, they, they need our prayers. You say, David, they need more than prayers. They need it. Well, I'm not even going down that road, but they need our prayers. <laughs> what gives us the right to intercede for others? Christ does. He's the ground on which we stand. He is our right because he is the intercessor. He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 17. Ephesians 5:30. we're members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So all of us, without exception, our believers are called to intercede. Maybe for a loved one, a friend, a workmate, whoever, government, whatever, we're called to pray and intercede, to stand in the gap. And if the church doesn't pray and intercede for a country, then what's going to happen? Maybe what is happening is what's happening because maybe we just didn't pray enough. What has happened in the South this past week or so, which absolutely has just has been awful, and now the pressure's on for it to happen in the North. And maybe it will happen if we don't care enough to pray. Maybe that's what will happen. So let's move on quickly. Maybe just one more. The prayer of authority. The prayer of authority. In Ephesians 1, 19, and we read this earlier on in our studies, but just to remind you, Ephesians 1, 19, Paul's praying and says, what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but on also that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is body, the fullness of him. He fills all in all. And then Ephesians 2, 4 and 6. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ, with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Christ has been literally raised up and literally, physically sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. But we, spiritually, mystically, we also sit in heavenly places with Christ. And that's the mystery of it all, isn't it? That he has given us the privilege and the right to sit in heavenly places with Christ. And if you read on, which we read this past couple of weeks, talking about spiritual warfare, that we stand in heavenly places. Not just sit, but we stand in heavenly places and we are girded with the armor of God. And so that means we have a place of authority in Christ. In Matthew 18, 
it mentions the term binding and loosing. But the context of Matthew 18, where it mentions that, by the way, the context of it is church discipline. Church discipline. Where something needs to be disciplined in church, a person, for instance, who's maybe become heretical or who's living in a moral lifestyle or whatever, who needs to be reprimanded. And it has to be done in a certain way. And Matthew 18 talks about that. And so there's a place for that in church life as a time of binding and loosing. Jesus talks about whatsoever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven, whatsoever you loosen on earth should be loosened in heaven. But there's more meaning than just that because in Matthew 16, there's another aspect to this binding and loosing. Matthew 16, if you can just have a little quick look at that. Simon, well, Jesus said to them, you know, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're Moses, Elijah, one of the prophets, but who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now let me just make something clear here. When he said you are Peter, you are Petros, you are a little stone, a pebble, a fragment of a rock. But upon this rock, this Petra, this enormous massive rock, I will build my church. What's he talking about? Not Peter. He's talking about what Peter had revealed to him. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the rock. He's the rock that the church is built on. That's what he's talking about. So let's not misunderstand that. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church that's built on the rock, Christ Jesus. And I will give you, not Peter, he's talking to these disciples here. I will give you the kingdoms of hell, the kingdom the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the, Jesus the Christ, as it wasn't just time to reveal that yet. Whatever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so there's authority there to bind some things and to loose some things. Well, such as, well, in Matthew 12, 22 to 30. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the, disciples, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come to you. 
Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then he will plunder his house. How can he enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? The strong man he was talking about was Satan, wasn't it? And he's given us the power to bind his activities. And thank God for that. And so there's a, a binding and a loosening. Luke 13 will not turn to it. You remember the woman who had the spirit of infirmity 18 years? Ought not this woman be loosed from her infirmities? Lo, whom Satan has bound these 18 years? And so there's a loosening of things that Satan has bound, and there's a binding of things that Satan, that we need to have against the works of the devil. So there's the prayer of authority that God has given uh, to us. And then we'll finish with this. Well, we'll finish with this section, and then we'll finish the, the chapter. It'll only take two minutes to finish the chapter. In Matthew 18, 19, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, go back to Matthew 18. The context of that is the binding and listening. It's to do with church discipline. And it's to do with disciplining a brother or sister in the Lord and then forgiving and all that. That's, what, that's the context. That's what, that's what to do with. Where two or three are gathered together in my name to administer discipline. There am I in the midst. I know we say that when there's not many turns up at the prayer meeting. And that's okay to say that. Not against that. That's fine. But the context is, it was to do with the discipline. Where two or three are gathered in my name. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established, it says in the Old Testament. Do you know in the Old Testament, you couldn't put somebody to death unless you had the wit two witnesses, at least two witnesses. Couldn't be done on the power of one witness, had to be at least two. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. However, out of that context, we can't pray a prayer of agreement. There is strength in unity. When people get together, either for good or for ill, for positive or for negative. You remember the Tower of Babel and how they got together, all with one language, all with one purpose, all with one dream? And God had to come down and stop them because he has now nothing that they have imagined to do will stop. Unless I stop them, they'll do it. Whatever they imagine to do, if they're in agreement. The 120 in the upper room for those 10 days. They were all with one accord. Imagine 120 Christians in one room for 10 days and they're all in one accord. That's a miracle in itself, isn't it? <laughs> and what happened when they were in one accord together with one purpose, a band Christ, the Holy Spirit came in great power. And so there's something about unity that creates a power. In verse 14 in Acts, it says, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. There's something powerful about men and women in Christ in agreement. It does something. It generates a power. 
1859, James McQuilkin, Jeremiah Manili, Robert Carlyle, and John Wallace, four young men up there in Ahokal and Kalibaki and Kelsery, they decided that they had to pray for the nation because they hated the state that it was in. There was such spiritual apathy, such a malaise, they decided we're going to pray to God breaks through. And so the four of them got together and they started to pray. And they prayed for weeks and nothing happened. Weeks. And then one person got saved. And then another, and another, and another, and another, and another, and another. So people were getting saved all over the place. And then other churches said, well, something's happening here. We'll pray too. And before it was over, we had a nation that was praying. And the revival broke out that the country has never seen before and never seen since. And a tenth of her population got saved in one year, the year of grace. Because four young men bound themselves together in a prayer agreement. A tenth. If a tenth of Northern Ireland got saved today in one year, that would be 187,000 people. That would get the attention of somebody, wouldn't it? Can you imagine the many new churches you'd have to build if 187,000 people got saved in one year? And that's what was happening in 1859. Farmers out in the fields, were, they had to get on their knees between the, the, the furrows because the conviction was on them. Children at school, kids praying at lunch hour, and teachers were falling on their knees to get saved. People queuing up outside church doors couldn't get in. The prayer meetings were so full they couldn't get in. In Ballymena, there was a thousand people at a prayer meeting. There was two thousand people standing outside couldn't get in to a prayer meeting. Not even the Sunday service. The nation was alive. And on the twelfth day, when the orange men normally marched, and they were marching then too, the same things were happening. There was rows and fights and riots and drunkenness. But on that day, there was none of that. And they were coming from all over in the trains up to Armo Park. Thousands, tens of thousands of them. And they were singing the songs of Zion. And instead of political rallies being held, it was all talking about the revival. And they had thousands of kids and they would take them underneath the trees in Botanic, Botanic Park there. And, and they would talk to them about the revival and they were getting saved. Can you imagine that? By the way, you Filipinos at the back... If that happened to your nation in one year, there'd be ten and a half million of you get saved in one year. That's a lot of people, isn't it, in one year? Why? Because somebody got an agreement to pray. The prayer of agreement. And so, prayer's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It can be the hardest thing, but it's a wonderful thing. And so Paul says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. <laughs> but notice this. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly, to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, because this is one of his prison epistles. He wrote this from a prison in Rome. 
that in it I may speak boldly. One translation says, fearlessly, as I ought to speak. Notice here Paul's asking for prayer, not, not, not for relief from his chains, so that I can be fearless in preaching the gospel. And he did that even to his captors. You know, you, you think of the Apostle Paul, you, you just think of a, a fearless, bold man who feared no one. That's what you think, isn't it? And he was, he was just so outspoken and bold and that nothing faced him. But that's not really true. 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, he talks to the Corinthians about being in weakness and fear and in much trembling. You see? And this is why he's asking them. I need your prayers for what I'm going through, for what I have to do in my situation. I'm an ambassador in chains, so I need your prayers. So he wasn't just sitting there smiling. Things was tough, and he needed their prayers. And you ought to pray for those who are ministering. You need to pray for them because you don't know what they're going through or what the devil's throwing at them. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother, and a faithful minister in the Lord. This man, Tychicus, was a great helper to Paul, and Paul assigned him to different things. He says, he's a beloved brother and a faithful minister in the Lord, and he will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs, and that he may comfort your hearts. He's thinking about them needing comfort. <laughs> he's in jail. He's thinking about them needing comfort. Peace to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Christ, our Jesus Christ, in sincerity. Amen. <laughs> what a letter, eh? What a powerful, powerful letter. And it's taken us a while to get through it, and I didn't, I, when I started, I honestly didn't think we were going to do this as much as we did. But do you know what? You could close that book, and you could open it next Sunday, and you could take another 18 weeks and you would never exhaust it. You have no idea how much I left out. <laughs> Truthfully. Because we'll be at it at the end of the year. It's just so rich and full. And it's one book that you should read and underline and mark continually. It's a wonderful book for the church. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the privilege and the responsibility and the right and the authority to pray, to make supplications and petitions and intercede on behalf of others. I thank you, Lord, for every prayer that was made for us. Lord, we're here tonight because somebody prayed. Somebody interceded. A dear mother, a father, a grandparent, somebody, a sister, a brother, and we're here because of those prayers that you answered on their behalf. So Lord, help us to see that if we pray, that you will answer prayer. So we thank you, Lord, that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ and that you've given us the authority as believers to bind and to loose to the glory of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal. 
or visit our website for more information www.mpc.org.uk